Hi, this is Trevor Waldorf from the Decentraland community, where we're pioneering governance in the metaverse through DAOs. If you want the best info on NFTs and all the land, keep tuned to Edge of NFT. Tally ho, all you NFT curious explorers. Jump into today's episode and find out how the Decentraland DAO is guiding the future of its virtual world. How the DAO has evolved from those before it, but is unique in its own right. And learn the many ways you can be part of the Ethereals community this Halloween season and hang out with other friendly ghosts. All this and a ton more on today's episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the Edge of NFT with your hosts, Jeff Kelly, Ethan Janney, and Josh Krieger. The podcast that brings you the top 1% of NFTs today and what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts and the business side, and also the human element of how NFTs are changing the way we interact with the things we love. This podcast is for the dreamers, disruptors, and doers who are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next. Today's episode features Trevor Waldorf, the initial Decentraland DAO facilitator, current community member, and former project manager at Decentraland. Trevor is building a DAO governance hall in Decentraland and on a creator grant given by the Decentraland DAO and currently studying mathematics at the University of Washington. Decentraland is a platform to create, explore, and trade in the first ever virtual world owned by its users, one that helps you push the limits of your imagination. Trevor, it's really exciting to have you here today. Let's push the limits of our imagination with you today. Let's do it. Thank you so much for including me in the conversation. I'm excited to chat. Yeah, totally. I think Decentraland has come up on our show probably among the most topics of conversation over the first 46 or so episodes. And we had the Boson Protocol guys talking about buying land in Decentraland. And you guys are a major hot topic. So we want to hear it straight from the source, someone that's been there at the jump. You know, it's taken the crypto world by storm, particularly this year for our listeners who are not in the know. Tell us about the platform and how you got involved with it. Yeah. Decentraland is one of those ideas that I think anyone who has spent significant time in virtual worlds sort of immediately, it catches their imagination and they run with it. And it's because of that, that I think, you know, even though I've been there from relatively early on in the project after the ICO, I can really take no credit for all of the cool headlines that come out of Decentraland, like my role and how I think about my roles in the community have always been to facilitate all the things that make the headlines and that you hear about and that make Decentraland really cool. So it's been an absolute honor to be part of the community as it's seen progressive, increasing waves of popularity and exploration and growth and the community has really matured over time. So for folks that, that don't really understand like the ins and outs of Decentraland, maybe they haven't been in there. Could you give us a, a little background on how it works for the layman that's just coming into NFTs? Absolutely. Okay. So I'll try not to get too philosophical. Purely practically, you can think about Decentraland as a 300 by 300 grid. It's a geographically constrained virtual world. Each of those grids is, can be thought of as a parcel. Every parcel is about 16 by 16 meters. If you consider a person to be between one and two meters tall. And each of those parcels is an also is an NFT. And that's what makes it a context for all kinds of things. And that's you know why we're talking today. It's pretty unique among NFT projects for a number of reasons, but but principally that the only property of these NFTs, you know, that's like ex- that extends the token standard is the metadata with the X and Y coordinates. And as it turns out, that's a lot of context because you have adjacency. And you have a new spatial context for people to understand tokens and their value and to come up with ways to think about the lifespan of a token and the affordances granted by a token, et cetera, when compared to other different extensions of the token standard. And technically, there are a lot of other extensions. The land contract looks very different from a typical ERC-721, but it retains those fundamentals that you can just say, that's an NFT. So you've got this 300 by 300 world. And then in that world, you have, or rather on top of that world, you can think about it, you have another layer, which is all of these utilities that interact with that token context. And these utilities are things like the marketplace, things that use other smart contracts to facilitate trading, to facilitate permissions, rights to how to access land, how to build on land. And on top of that, you have the experience layer, 
where people can explore the land and see models that other people create. And that experience layer is another set of standards that are, you know, not as rigorously tested as the base token standard, but it's another set of open standards that kind of runs throughout the project that says, here's how to display avatars, characters, wearables. But at every point of the stack, there's a kind of a proliferation of standards technology. So there can be multiple ways to interpret the base layer, which you see among all the most interesting NFT projects, which is that you can always extend and, and build more and more layers of context on top of the base. In this case, very simple metadata. That's kind of the ecosystem. And then the very, very top layer is, you know, everyone, us here talking about it and people talking about governance and the DAO and deciding how the community should conceptualize itself. Yeah. So let's dig into that a little bit. The Decentraland DAO, you mentioned it as the top layer. So how does it relate to the platform overall? How does it all work? Compli- well, that, that, the question for me is like, does it work? And the answer to the first part of that question of how does it relate to the original layers is through a complex series of governance and cultural ideas about how things should be run. So the Decentraland, Decentralized Autonomous Organization is, as a headline, tasked with governing the world and setting the policies that impact people's interpretation of the world and that sort of, quote unquote, layer two access to secondary marketplaces and wearables, that sorts of things. The DAO as a government is also sort of ultimately responsible for the land contract and the future upgrades that might be made to it or implementation reinterpretations that might have to happen recently as like a really concrete example. There's been a lot of discussion in the DAO community about how do we give people land that has been lost in the past. So if someone loses their wallet, you know, you don't want a lot of the land in Decentraland to be locked up in lost wallets because it's not very big and there's lots of adjacency going on. So you might have what you might call dead land next to a live land. So the DAO is wondering, well, maybe it's really beneficial actually to make a trade-off between the sanctity of our contract and the sanctity of our token because there is like an upgradability proxy on the land contract itself. The DAO is saying, maybe you want to sacrifice that sanctity and like don't throw away the keys just yet. And we can in exchange get people on the platform that might otherwise have lost their keys, but could contribute regardless. Or if they did have their keys, they could contribute really cool content. I think I might have lost my keys to like a beautiful piece of land. I unfortunately left the purchasing of land right after the ICO up to a friend and that didn't work out so well. And I'm trying not to be bitter over those uh, spoiled milk at this point. But yeah, you can't do that. There's just too much over the last too many opportunities to become something. It's totally true. There's always another opportunity next week in this space. And I do remember the very beginning and these things happen, right? People do lose their wallets and their keys. And, you know, you don't want this dead piece of land just there next to this beautiful Taj Mahal replica, right? Exactly. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, this is one of those decisions that if the founding team came out, like in other scenarios, it'd be pretty normal for a founding team to come out and say, oh yeah, like, you know, we've got this upgradability proxy. This is ostensibly what it's for, helping the community. We're just going to make this change. But the Decentraland DAO is a lot more responsible philosophically for the future of the platform. And I think people feel a lot more ownership. So it's really up to the community in this case, whether or not that's a decision that should be made. You can kind of think of the Decentraland ecosystem as being split practically into like many separate quadrants. And there's a centralized team that contributes in a limited way. Then there's the decentralized people that the DAO. And what's really happening is we're seeing the DAO take a lot of the big philosophical questions like this under their umbrella of responsibility and also take the blame for any potential consequences. So in this case, the community said, no, we actually really think that the sanctity of the land contract is the most important thing for now. And we're not going to have some kind of judiciary review committee go through an ad hoc, you know, listen to a court case about someone's lost land and proof. And it's just too messy for now. Even if we could do it safely, we think that it's a unique part of Decentraland that if you lose your keys, they're gone forever. And we'll have ways to deal with that perhaps in the future. But the DAO has voted no. So the voting mechanism there, just to provide more context and, and cut me off if this is going too detailed, but voting mechanism there is, is through the snapshot platform and anyone with the mana token or other tokens that exist 
inside the Decentraland ecosystem. So land itself or names. I think there's other contributors to this voting power, aggregate score. Anybody that ends up with those in their wallet and as part of their identity can then vote on these proposals with a proportional amount of voting power. So if you contribute to the Decentraland ecosystem, if you hold mana, if you hold land, if you're active in this, you know, in the community, in the scenes, you have a, you have a voice in the governance and that's how things get done. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear the details. And it's also interesting to hear that there are kind of overlaps in the physical real estate world. Of course, Jeff probably knows the most about that out of all three of us, but it does make me think of areas of towns that get sort of taken over, taken back by the government for, you know, for unpaid taxes or whatever. And and they try to do something with it, right? Like they try to do something productive with it. Luckily, you don't have uh, squatting on vacant land, you know, it's sort of like unseemly things going on. There's just nothing going on, right? But it's a similar issue. It sounds like when you have land vacant, it's just not great for the whole system. You know, I was curious, we've heard about sort of this sort of unique things that go on in Decentraland and as they relate to the DAO. And I'm not sure if you're a member of many additional DAOs, right? Do you have any thoughts about how it Decentraland DAO is different than other DAOs or how it wants to be different? Any thoughts on that? So I, I do hang out in quite a few other DAOs, mostly to like steal like the great ideas and stuff. And because people have been working in the DAO space longer than I've been working in crypto, you know, like the original DAO was very advanced and, and like pretty mind blowing at the time. So in 2016, 2015. So there's a lot of work there that's like not been highlighted in the way that work in NFTs has been highlighted and thinking about token affordances, et cetera. So I hang out in a lot of other DAOs. You can kind of think about the existing field of popular DAOs in two ways. One is like, here are these like tribes of people that are doing things and they're using this as a replacement for almost like a small office. So it's collectives of freelancers and they're sort of restructuring their administrative and billing work through a DAO. And there are maybe votes or something like that, but the polity isn't big enough to make it a real like governance experiment. It's sort of like this tribe of, in most cases, like incredibly skilled executioners or executives is maybe a better way to say it, although they're certainly killing it. And then the, on the other side, you've got like really, really big financial style DeFi protocols that are using the DAO as a much more like game theory approach to tune parameters as part of their liquidity pools and doing like decentralized deal making to create extremely deep pools and upgrade the platform and make sure that things are done with the proper checks and you know, like bigger bureaucracy stuff. So that's really cool. But Decentraland is weird middle space where it has to come up with policies like how many polygons can like a coat be? What's a fair amount of money to charge for content moderation? Can I ask you how many polygons? guns can a coat be like what's the range here we're talking about yeah, yeah, yeah. okay so no offhand <laughs> yeah so the answer I, I think is about 1500 tries per gender and so there there's like two that's what i would have said <laughs> yeah of course it's very intuitive <laughs> <laughs> i think it's like 1500 tries per outfit and you can assign you know if maybe you want a super detailed coat but it, but sweatpants everywhere else like that's totally fine so 1500 tries per outfit per gender and that is subject to change. Like that's something that we've seen the DAO do is come in and say, well, maybe we should consider upping this or reducing it for performance because people are having performance problems, et cetera. The most relevant example there is with publishing fees. So anytime that you want to upload like user-generated content in a centralized company in something like Roblox, there's a large administrative burden there. And in our case, the DAO does that administration via a committee. And that committee has to be paid a certain amount. So the DAO has to decide all of that. And we've seen like very effective execution there regarding setting up a wearables curation committee. And then, you know, the committee saying, well, individual members, like I'm not really philosophically equipped to arbitrate whether or not a certain symbol can be shown in Decentraland. We'll throw it back to the DAO and have an open vote. And then of course, everybody in the DAO right now says, yeah, like marijuana is totally fine in Decentraland. So in that way, like there's an interchange between these delegations of responsibilities. The DAO says somebody needs to take an opinion and then the like, individual can come back and say, actually, we need the wisdom of the crowd right here. So the Decentraland DAO is very unique in that aspect that there's a, a real interplay between the bureaucracy and the implementation. That's a great segue to something that's been on my mind ever since I moderated a, a legal panel on metaverses thinking 
about sort of where art was created, where someone that bought the art is from, where that person sold the art to, and whether that art was co-created by multiple people. You can get pretty complicated, right? And there was recently a project that launched Gambling Apes, where you buy an ape, you get some of the proceeds from a casino that's going to be built in Decentraland. And so you think about sort of every world, there's always this red light district, right? And I'm curious if you could elaborate on some of the problems within the Decentraland DAO, how it's addressing issues like this that need community-based solutions and what some of those solutions might look like. Yeah. The, you know, red light district example is interesting because the Decentraland community has been time and time again tested. And the answer has been, we really prefer to be more open, to be like a place for all kinds of ideas. And we have a very liberal sense of what is acceptable in kind of like a traditional, not quite neoliberal, but like maybe more like 60s, 70s, liberal sense of you have to tolerate intolerance in a certain way with limits. And those limits have been expressed by the DAO with like things that us as people from Western liberal democracies would be like, man, that's pretty reasonable. So yeah, you know, specific challenges that can kind of only be solved by the community. A lot of the times it is the big protocol upgrades because token projects in general are very subject to the amount of trust the community has in them. And in a space uh, like crypto and blockchain, where it is sort of philosophy first and practicalities second sometimes, that accountability to the community is really, really important. So Decentraland succeeds, or rather one of the challenges that Decentraland always has is this sufficiently decentralized. And the DAO answers that in some effective ways that is unique from other projects. Thinking about other problems that the, the Decentraland as a platform has that the community can solve, first and foremost is content creation. So obviously like Ubisoft, these EA, they have these subsidiaries all around the world creating content. And if they want to make many virtual cities every year, they absolutely can. But Decentraland is not that. It's a very, very small team on the centralized portion of the foundation. And the DAO is, is a very, very large team, but not many professional AAA level video game devs. So the community comes together through a variety of incentives and pre-existing ideas and expectations for the platform to create that content. And we've seen things like, I don't know if the casino that you just mentioned, Josh, was through Decentral Games, but there are these large sort of conglomerate sub-communities within Decentraland that are creating content at a pretty professional level and populating the world because you need content in your world in order for people to come and stay in it and make use of mana and make the land tokens, you know, interesting and valuable. There's a real, like any kind of two-sided platform or marketplace has this problem of that sort of thing. So the community will, in this case, provide 100% of that content. And that's one, a challenge, but two, incredible opportunity. So if you're a content creator, come hang. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I also, I was browsing OpenSea this weekend typical Sunday morning activity. And there's the monkey DAO too, which also is going to, so we got monkeys and apes, both with casinos and Decentraland coming. But one of the prerequisites on their roadmap, which feels like a really important one for the gambling apes is they have to get a casino license or they have to sort of acquire one. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Totally decentralized world, but they feel like they have to acquire this externally regulated license. Has that been a common occurrence? How does that even work? It seems super dependent on the locality of the publishing team. And I think this is the next big step. Like there's this idea of true anonymity in the, in the cypherpunk manifesto that I think a lot of people at Decentraland were really into early on and probably still are. But we go from seeing individuals and teams of known people publishing projects to more ambient publishing, perhaps, or like this ambient creation of anonymous groups that maybe an individual, maybe a team, may actually not be a person directly at all, might be you know generated doing things not necessarily to skirt regulation, but to provide a framework where prior none existed. So in these specific examples, like as you know, especially with like issuing things that might be interpreted as securities by some nations in the world, like everyone is interested in complying with their local regulations to the most reasonable and like to the extent that is appropriate. And I think that everyone handles that separately in Decentraland. 
And people that are interested in getting casino license, like casino licenses, that's appropriate probably for where they live. I would love to see the Decentraland DAO say, okay, we think that existing legislation is insufficient. We're going to come up with our own alternative and then work with national governments to make it approved. But that's not, that's like several orders of magnitude of impact away from where DAOs are right now. But we're talking about the future. So my hope is that there's a little bit more choice as far as who are you regulated by in the future. And DAOs could be one of those regulatory bodies. I want to ask you more about the future, Trevor, but I got to ask, you call it a DAO. We've been referring to it as a DAO. A lot of people do. Is there a specific reason you say DAO versus DAO? No, there's not at all. I imagine I'm one of those people, or I sound like one of the people that say DApps, which is like endlessly infuriating to me. Working on like a super international team and especially purely remotely in most cases has changed a lot of the words I use to be like more international Atlantic style English. And that a lot of that involves saying acronyms broken apart instead of as a individual thing. So Got it. yeah, no, that's fun. serious. Yeah, yeah. Right on, man. <laughs> so look, we talked a bit about the future. You know, how else do you envision the DAO evolving? And you mentioned some of the cyberpunk philosophy, like what philosophy really drives you know, governance strategies now? And uh, how do you envision that evolving in the future? So one of the funny things that happens on the Decentraland Discord and the Decentraland forums is that people show up and they see something that's happening and they go, that doesn't seem very democratic. Like, it seems like individuals should have more representation or like private property owners should have more influence. And that's always super interesting to me because it's like, where are you getting this prior? Like, you've brought this from your own upbringing or perhaps like the political philosophy classes you've taken in high school or, or university level, et cetera. It's not clear to me that the prior of a DAO is like a super Western political thought. And so I'm very excited to see where things diverge. I think that if you are a listener right now and what you really want to do is like find the cutting edge thoughts on this, you should look up Vitalik's semi-recent post about transition away from a token-based governance into the possible next step. I believe it's on his blog. It's like second or third most recent post. But these ideas of like token voting being the end-all be-all of decentralized governance is obviously not true. And the current interpretation of the Decentraland DAO is one, not necessarily, it's not strictly bound to the Decentraland land NFT. So someone else could come up and interpret the state of Ethereum differently and offer like a much better governance solution to Decentraland. And that's like, there could be like a different competing Decentraland DAO. And that's very exciting. But I think that there are so many mechanisms out there and many ideas about how perhaps governance should be run. And maybe it's like a team of teams approach with lots of small committees, or maybe it's like the only delegation and we elect a dual dictators every year on annual cycles and we pay them a stipend. And then, you know, they have to release everything after a year. Like there's all kinds of ideas and there's so much possibility, not only in the what's happening up next in the DAO, but like if there are, there are other DAOs that are interested in taking over Decentraland and taking it places. So that's exciting. I'd love to see Gandhi as like the DAO dictator. That would be pretty cool. <laughs> Someone with a spine, a real spine in their philosophy and, uh, and a practical follow through. Right. But it's still so early, man. That's the thing I think about all of this is it's so early and as sophisticated as they are, there's just so much more room to grow and explore and iterate. So it's uh, be fun to watch this ride. Yeah, really interesting stuff. So this is all interesting to, to hear about. And I think there's some people, I mean, if they've been listening to this podcast, they've heard about DAOs. But if it's the first time somebody's hearing about a DAO, first of all, they're like, what? And then you got to go and saying what it is and then, but getting involved. So can you tell us a little bit about how people begin to and continue to get involved and say this specifically the Decentraland DAO and the community? What are the inlets and the ways to continue contributing? There's two really great, super concrete ways that I would recommend people get started. The first is you should just go to forum.decentraland.org and you should click on the governance section and you should start reading through stuff that people have posted. And that'll give you a good sense of the tone and timbre of the conversation in the DAO. If you're looking for a more concrete way, you should go to governance.decentraland.org, which is the sort of alpha beta DAO voting interface product. That's where people post proposals for perhaps what should be done or what should be added to the world. And you can think about the DAO's work. Like the DAO is very understaffed right now, thinking about it from a bureaucracy perspective. So 
all the things that the DAO has to do, or rather the work to be done by the DAO can be done by almost anyone that has an opinion about Decentraland. So if you're sort of curious about the project and maybe you spend an hour or two in world exploring, you can go to the governance DAO website and filter by POIs, which is the point of interest proposals. And there you can see where people are trying to you know, add new map markers to the world of Decentraland. And then you can go through and click through each map marker and then take a screenshot of that and then post that on Discord or on the forums and say, hey, I thought this was pretty cool. Everyone should go vote for it to be added to a POI. So you're kind of acting as like a lobbyist glue layer between content creators that want to evangelize their content and then the administrators that are voting on proposals of the DAO, but can't review everything. Like there's just way too much work to do for people that have lots of mana to be making votes. So we need people that have opinions about the DAO and can, you know, click on links and post on the forums. And that's like immediate work that can be done in 15 minutes. And then you've just contributed to the DAO. Very cool. I think that theme of understaffing, I can relate edge of NFT. We have a lot to do. And I think a lot of projects have challenges like that, right? I mean, with such a fast growing industry, there's so much opportunity, but with that opportunity takes focus and everyone's sort of working on multiple projects at the same time to sort of help co-create this ecosystem. Yeah, exactly. I'm impressed by what you've been able to do with just a small crew here. Well, we have some a great team behind the scenes as well. Shout out to Gail, who does all our social media. She's amazing. I don't know where we'd be without her. She's probably listening since she helps curate the social for each show. One last question here, Trevor. Outside of Decentraland, you're part of different DAOs. You have a long-term view of the industry. What are the NFT projects and platforms that stand out to you as game changers in the next wave of the NFT evolution? So unfortunately, can't answer this. And the reason for that is that I'm quite bearish in many ways on uh, sort of the current meta of how NFTs are being used. And I think that perhaps what I can bring is like a different framing for how to conceptualize NFTs that I used a lot when I was working in product at Decentraland. So one way you can think about tokens and these various standards is that what they're doing is they're making transactable affordance. So you can think of an affordance as something that is like a utility that is afforded you by an object. In this case, the object is a token and it's cool because it's super easily transactable on the Ethereum network because of the assign new owner or whatever function in the ERC-721 contract standard. So insofar as I think that everything that's being done in NFTs is, is exciting and cool, and there's like an incredible amount of talented artists out there and stuff like that, but I'm actually not convinced that most people are using the NFT standard in like a useful or interesting way that's unique to NFTs as opposed to just like PNGs and generative art, which like are industries that I am adore and like I'm actively working in. But thinking really about what are the unique affordances that I can build around a token that make people more productive or build a platform for a new economy or new ways for people to work together and collaborate through incentives that are bonded by like very simple metadata, whether you're hashing a configuration or you're attaching a set of resources on IPFS, et cetera. I really want to see people given superpowers by the token and brought into communities by a token instead of focusing mostly on collectibles and ownership, which again is cool. And I'm excited and I love trading cards and, you know, generative art, but I want to see the utility that NFTs can really unlock spread to more projects. And I want to see more projects build with that as a starting point, a focus on users instead of on collectability. It's interesting you say that right before the show, I got a text message from someone saying, who would be a good person, you know, to do a, a TEDx talk on the future of what NFTs should be. So we'll have to talk offline about that. Okay. Yeah, it can right. be a little spicy on NFTs sometimes, but I love them. So lots of thoughts there. Dude, one way to think about like the utility of the collectibles, like the really fun stuff is that it's this introduction to the mass market, right? Of people that may not otherwise be involved in NFTs. You know, if we started with like pure utility stuff that's likely to drive the future, like as you're saying, I mean, there's so much fun stuff in there. It's not as sexy. It's not as fun, you know? So to get this broad awareness. I mean, if you look at the utility of these fun projects as being to drive awareness, yeah, I think there's something there. That's true. And, and the idea of like, first it's games, then it's the internet. 
I agree with that. I think I'm just very impatient, so. Totally understood. Hi there. Let me interrupt one sec with a special secret. Here at Edge of NFT, we want to loop you in on the best kept secrets in NFT right now. So this might be the first time you've heard of it, but you need to know about Koi, especially if you are a creator or even if you're just a supporter of groundbreaking projects. You need to dive into Koi ASAP and you can do so absolutely for free. Here is the best way. Go to edgeofnft.com slash Koi. That's edgeofnft.com slash K-O-I-I two eyes. There you can find out how to install the Finichrome plugin, publish your first 50 NFTs for free, and start earning Koi whenever anyone visits your NFTs. Imagine a world where sites like Facebook and Instagram would allow creators to earn every time their posts are viewed. This is what Koi is built to support. Plus, Koi is built to scale globally without killing the planet. Go to edgeofnft.com slash Koi Install the Finichrome plugin right now, publish your first 50 NFTs for free, and start earning Koi today. Well, hey man, let's shift gears a little bit if it works for you. We want to do this segment that we call Edge Quick Hitters, which is just a fun, quick way to get to know you a little better. There's 10 questions and we're looking for short, single word or few word answers, but feel free to expand if you get the urge. Ready to dive in? Let's go. All right, rock and roll. Question number one, what is the first thing you remember ever purchasing in your life? Pokemon cards. Nice. And there you go. Not unexpected <laughs> from folks in the industry. That makes sense. Yes, indeed. Question number two. What is the first thing you remember ever selling in your life? I charged a boy down the street uh, f- for a time using my bicycle. Ooh, nice. I love that. You, like I, charged for services rendered. I charged for time playing my mobile video games. Oh, that's awesome. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so cool. I don't think I knew that much, you Josh. Also like um, a like a nice sharing economy kind of play, you know, like thankfully. Yes. Early movers in the space. Question number three, what is the most recent thing you purchased? Mm. Purchased a large roll of custom printed fabric that is being shipped to me right now. And the design on it is like a repeating pattern based on the state of Ethereum sort of turned into a camo, digital camo thing. That's awesome. What, what are you going to be doing with that fabric? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I think I got one of those too. They're on back order, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It takes a long time to get here. So as a hobby, and I, uh, I figured I could merge my sewing or make use of it in a way such that can make some Decentraland wearables and, and other wearables on platforms that are a little more purposefully generative art focused uh, based on the state of Ethereum. And that would be kind of a fun thing to share with people. So Lots of shirts and bomber jackets and textile pants to come from that role. I dig it. We'll keep an eye out. Sign me up. I want one of those one on one. All right. Keep All us right. in mind, brother. We'll do. Uh, we'll do. Question number four. What is the most recent thing you sold? Okay. I think actually the Decentraland land auction is possibly the most recent thing I was involved in selling. The big lesson from that was that it's a really great thing to help other people sell things. And that's what I really love, not so much the direct auctioning and selling. I think that is a false answer. You just sold a bomber jacket to me. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's right. I just pitched a totally new NFT project and then totally sold it. Yes, ideas count. (laughs) Question number five. What is your most prized possession? Well, the answer is, the real answer is my cello because that is like an incredible anxiety outlet and stress relief for me. And I've been playing cello for a long time and it's a real part of me, an extension. What do you like to play? Do you play classical music? Do you improvise? What's your, uh, what's your go-to yeah. there? Some box so, something? Uh, let's see. I'm oh, working on Are we going to get a solo or something? What's going on? I got, yeah, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, just yeah, the yeah. Okay, well, not going to work. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a regular. No, I've got an Elgar piece in progress, the Enigma variations. And then I also make a lot of drum and bass with cello on it. Which is nice. A little different. Run the gamut. Beautiful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a mathematics tie in there, isn't there? Exactly. Both of those. Question six. If you could buy anything in the world, digital, physical, service, and experience that's currently for sale, what would that be? I think I would buy Decentraland land so I could build like a cool nightclub on there or something or maybe a fashion store. That's nice. I believe you're not the first person with that answer, by the way, about Decentraland. <laughs> it is a hot commodity, that's for sure. It's cool. Yeah, most definitely. 
Question seven, if you could pass on one of your personality traits to the next generation, what would it be? I think that everyone in the next generation should be really focused on people and interested in what's going on in others and what other people's hopes and dreams and ideas are. So that would be a trait. That's something I'm always having obsessed with and I really try to cultivate. So I'd encourage <laughs> the next generation to inherit that. And that can attest, Trevor interviewed us before we interviewed him. <laughs> I really enjoyed that interview. But me as well. It was unsatisfying because there's obviously so much more, but thanks for indulging. Of course, man. That's a great attribute. Flip side, question eight. If you could eliminate one of your personality traits from the next generation, what would that be? So the way I kind of think about this is like, what's something that I do that I would not want my kids to do? And I think that my principal vice, the circle of hell that I will live in, is the circle with, uh, with sloth and gluttony. So I would encourage people in the next generation to not wake up late and to not overindulge in ice cream and donuts, et cetera. Mm. Tell us about those though. Come on, like what's your favorite ice cream? (laughs) Big shout out, Bluebird ice cream in Seattle right now. Oh, nice. Doesn't get better. Nice. And donut? What kind of donuts you like? I love the little like one euro Nutella croissants that you get in every metro station in Europe. Nice. That's a daily driver. Nice. All right, you you got to stop, man. I'm getting super hungry now too. (laughs) I'm I'm gonna go get some donuts, guys. But last question, though, how many polygons are required to create a donut? (laughs) (laughs) That's a classic Blender tutorial. Quite a lot. Many, many, many thousands. Many thousands. Excellent. Amazing. A little easier. Question nine. (laughs) What did you do just before joining us on the podcast? I have been working on a sketch for the extension of that DAO governance hall in Decentraland. So one of the ways that I really approach virtual level design is to think about how much verticality can we add to make it interesting? I think humans love the up and down. And two, how can we make it feel like a really lived space? So who cleans the space? Where does the water go when it rains? Stuff like that. So I've been sketching on that all, uh, all morning and afternoon. Oh, that's cool, man. Question 10, last one. What are you going to do next after the podcast? I'm writing API documentation for the, like a little data processing API for the DAO so that people can really quickly understand like, How many votes have there ever been? What is the voting trend over time? Time series based vote data. Woohoo. Sexy stuff, man. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm in my dream world. Yeah, but (laughs) but that was the thing, man. That's such quick hitters. Thanks so much for playing with us. Really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you guys. All right. Hot topics. Yeah. Let's jump into smart topics. Let's head it. First one here Animoca Brands to acquire majority stake in Bondly. Okay. Wow. Big deals going on here. Enabling NFT assets to move from one blockchain to the other. Um, Animoca Brands, the company driving digital property rights via NFTs, announced it will acquire this majority stake in Bondly, the premier NFT solutions provider, empowering the next generation of NFT creators. The investment positions both companies to drive mass NFT adoption across Animoca Brands' portfolio of companies operating in gaming, sports, entertainment, collectibles, and other areas. Of course, we interviewed Yatsu of Animoca Brands. Man, that guy's sharp made all kinds of incredible acquisitions over the years, way before things were cool, knew exactly what was coming next. So look out for this partnership, right? Yeah, I see this as like one of those things where, you know, you see them continually rolling up other companies, bringing them into the fold of Animoca brands. And some of it's talent related, some of it's the underlying technology of these companies, but they really you know, from everything we've seen, support the ecosystem in really big ways and seem to be all about plugging people into the collective network that they've built and finding those synergies and, and driving the industry forward. Uh, we've seen Bondly do a number of things here over the last several months. And so it, it, to me, it looks like a great fit. We know what Animoca Brands is all about. It's driven by community. So I think Bondly is a good fit for that community. Trevor, have you had much contact or observations around either of those? No pressure, but just curious. I know you're really focused on Decentraland. Yeah, I've certainly been in the room with Animoca or the you know, proverbial Zoom room with Animoca. Uh, several times, like very early on in Decentraland, I was always impressed. Anyone that's doing cross-chain stuff, like more power to you, good luck. That's way over my head. I think that taking on, like it's probably important to take on the beast of Ethereum and the unbelievable momentum that's there right now. But I fully expect things change in the future and as a big task. So go for it. It's very exciting that if you're partnering with anyone, partner with Animoca, join that roof because they are... Sharp, like you said. Very cool. Well said. 
All right. Avalanche raises $230 million from private sale of AVAX tokens. Hey, that's not too shabby. The tokens have been sold to some well-known crypto funds. Polychain and Three Arrows Capital are leading the investment. Among other things, the foundation plans to support DeFi projects as well as enterprise applications through grants, token purchases, and other forms of investment. All right. Well, there's a lot to do with that $230 million. What would you do? I would just buy property in Decentraland myself, but I don't know. <laughs> no, man, look, it gives them flexibility to go out there and mix it up, right? Like that's enough cash to go out and really make an impact. You know, it reminds me of when, you know, when Filecoin, you know, first did their ICO back in 2017, right? It was over, I think it was like 250 million, it was a huge raise. And I remember Josh and I talking about it at the time, we said, man, that gives them runway into the foreseeable future to get out there and, and experiment and learn and iterate and build their team, figure out how they're really going to make an impact on the space. And, you know, we weren't sure, you know, what would happen. But sure enough, like three, four years later, you really saw that come together and $230 million gives you tons of runway to do amazing things. And knowing that team, having spoken to that team and seeing what their, their vision is, it, it's just great to see them have that flexibility. And I can't wait to see what they do with it and how they move the industry forward. I think one of the big problems in crypto projects, like maybe less so as time goes on, but obviously the people that are building and starting these projects are incredibly talented and smart. But at some point you want to bring in people that have like C-level experience with 10,000 headcount companies because you're looking to build it really incredible scale and enter the mainstream in like a super competitive way in markets that are very old world, like international finance is sort of mind-numbingly complex. So there's always a question of like, how do you attract that kind of talent to your company? And you look at races that are like 30, $40 million and you're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Like even in a super overcapitalized economy, those are impressive numbers. But once you start to get up into these bigger multi-hundred races, that's where you kind of say, okay, like what's the talent that they can acquire with this? As you mentioned, the runaway certainly, but it's a very different game than a smaller ICO or an NFT drop. Like even the biggest NFT drops, it's a different ball field. So very excited for this kind of large scale work that's moving crypto into the mainstream, not just as a buzzword, but as a piece of infrastructure. This is the whisperings. I recently set up my Avalanche C-Chain account on MetaMask. You know, it was pretty seamless and their network moves fast. So I'm excited to see what they have cooking. Yeah, maybe they could buy a couple of board apes with a little bit of leftover funds as well. <laughs> but um, let's hit the next, let's hit the next hot topic. OpenSea mm, admits insider training of NFTs it promoted. Okay, well, definitely heard about this. It's good we're chatting about it. An employee at OpenSea, large digital collectible marketplace, used inside knowledge to buy NFTs before they are promoted on the website. CEO Devin Finzer said the incident was incredibly disappointing. It did not represent the team's values. Independent review has been launched, OpenSea said. Yes, and in a blog post, Mr. Finzer confirmed an employee purchased items that they knew were set to display on our front page before they appeared there publicly. Well, of course that is unethical, but I'm also just curious. We talked about OpenSea previously, I think at the time, at least that we were talking, they had like 37 employees or something like that. And they have this huge valuation, not that many people working for it. I guess there's an advantage, there's an advantage there if it's a small group of people that you can sort of communicate the ethos among that group. But it's also like, I wonder what kind of protocols they either have or, or need to have in order to very explicitly prohibit these kind of things, set guidelines around them. I mean, just in general, in the crypto and NFT space, there's a lot of gray area, right? And so it's important, I think, in these organizations that they're going to have to have protocols, right? Yeah, we talk about ethos a lot as a group as we scale. I mean, this one seems pretty clear as clear can be in terms of head of product should not be buying things before he, after he's determined they're going to be on the front page of the site. But I think conflicts of interest and transparency in these types of topics need to come up and the industry needs to stay on top of this stuff and self-report. Otherwise, all the goodness that's happening can get overshadowed because of situations like this. Yeah, man, this is, a, this is one of those places where some of the things that are in place in the financial industry probably make sense within crypto. 
like monitoring of wallets of uh, certain employees, potentially. I don't know what the exact answer is, but, you know, you heard recently, just within the last week, I think, uh, that Mass Mutual was fined like $4 million, I think it was, because of Keith Gill's trading activity, you know, Roaring Kitty slash Deep Fucking Value out of Wall Street bets, right? Even though he wasn't a trader and all this stuff, like they're still responsible for monitoring the trading activity of their team members. And maybe there's something in there around that, right? Is the, there's a rule, anybody can break a rule, obviously, but there's a rule or not doesn't mean too much in my mind. It's so unethical. That guy, you know, should be held accountable regardless. He knew better, but, but maybe there's some kind of monitoring or something. I, I don't know. I don't know what the exact answer is, but I don't think you can just put your trust in your company core values or a stated rule. There are some serious dollars at stake, no matter how well compensated these team members are. Sometimes it's going to be tough. It's going to be a, a tough ethical dilemma when you have some information that could change you and your family's life forever and you don't act on it. OpenSea is in like a really tough spot. I think that the team kind of went through the ringer in a lot of ways for many years there. You like they didn't have a token and there was, there was funding problems, but it was obvious that they were like really an essential part of the ecosystem. And now they sort of exist in this place where they're a glue between Web 2 and Web 3. And part of the messiness, like this is all downstream of that messiness of trying to act as a glue and not having like incentives for a protocol of exchange. And I think that they're doing a fantastic job of being a, a great, like the leading marketplace in NFTs, no doubt. But at the same time, like you do want to see more protocol and incentives oriented approaches to creating some kind of egalitarian exchange. That's tough, but also <laughs> you shouldn't do this. <laughs> like it's hard to not do this. Like you said, when you can change your family's life forever, but it's also not hard to not do this. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. exactly. Totally well said. I mean, it does seem a little bit off that 98% of all transactions in the NFT world are going through one platform and, and that's not easy. So it's good that they got in front of this. They addressed it transparently. They're sort of moving in the right direction. All right, should we move on to our next hot topic? Let's yeah, do it. I'm excited. And here we have a special hot topic spotlight, Ethan. Is that true? That is true, Josh. You've heard correctly. And we've just been joined by some special guests as part of this hot topic. You'll know them as Rad Laser Falcon and Danko. And I'll give a little bit of background and we'll have a chit chat with them. They've been kind enough to join us for the sponsored hot topic spotlight. It is on Ethereals. And these are the two founding members of the Ethereals to talk about the latest news from this exciting project. So dropping just in time for spooky season, Ethereals are 12,345 uniquely hand-drawn interdimensional ghosts randomly generated and minted on the Ethereum blockchain. Their traits are pulled from all reaches of the metaverse and include surprising mashups of cultural references all the way down to super insider rarities. And I will say it once again, after getting some new spooky pajamas for my three-year-old, I'm seeing way too many overlaps in what's cool in NFTs and what my th three-year-old thinks is cool. <laughs> We're all getting excited for Halloween. You know, it's a good gauge. Yeah, welcome, yeah, Rad Laser Falcon and Danko. Yeah, thanks for having us on the podcast. It's been an awesome show so far. Yeah, yeah. If a three-year-old likes something, you're on the right track with your project. Exactly. Yeah. Are you guys inspired to create some kind of haunted house in Decentraland after this show? Well, we do have a portion on our roadmap that includes Decentraland and, and we hope that we can do it justice. It was one of the very, very first things that we wanted as our bucket list is to get something in Decentraland. And it was really great listening to Trevor speak on Decentraland and utility and like layering like utility within the space because I agreed wholeheartedly that there's so many PFP projects and that's kind of all it is. And it is kind of like reduced to just trading cards, like online trading cards. And I think there's such a greater opportunity for the space, like an insane amount of opportunity. And I really want to be Trevor's friends <laughs> and, and, uh, after hearing him speak and take that into account. There was a lot of great insight at more than a haunted house and amusement park, because that's yeah. central to our story. Yeah, to be clear, so like our ghosts are just kind of like a construct for what they might be. So it's the closest kind of like human construct to understand the tech of what these themes were actually created to do and how they were created. So to be clear, because we say this all the time in our Discord, that nobody's dead. They're actually a tunnel. And so their bodies were 
pulled apart, recombinated into this form. The idea was they had some amusement park, had so much fun, and were obliterated into immortality. And so it's like these goats that exist. Yeah, yeah there's the te- so the rides are the tech and the fun park, and we're teasing out all this other story. But there's like the beings that created the fun park who. So there's a series of challenges that you have to go through to be able to be able to ride the rides. In culmination of exiting the park is when you assume your new form. So. These are just like kind of human constructs for like understanding this backstory. And exiting in the park is AKA minting. Minting. <laughs> and finding out who your ethereal is and finding out the traits that you may identify with, et cetera. But they all are unified by fun. Well, we won't put Trevor on the spot and whether or not he wants to be your friend, but maybe he will be <laughs> after this discussion's complete. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. So for someone that isn't familiar with PFP projects, what are ethereals like? What would you explain to somebody that's just kind of new to this space? And, and how is it different from other projects maybe they've heard about in the news? Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about it a little bit in terms of what the ghosts are. I think one of the main unique things about the ethereal team is we're completely doxxed. So there's Brad Laser, Falcon, and I, but then there's also seven others on the team. And it, we started as a community project. Uh, the core of our team met on Clubhouse and we're all NFT artists and collectors. And we saw so many projects happening where we didn't know who was actually making these things, but we we're still supporting them. I mean, I, one of my avatar right now is an eight and I love it. And, and so there's, there's those OG projects in the space that, you know, we're fans of, but we wanted to come together and make something of our own that's both by the community and, and gives back to the community. And so that's the big part of our project. I think that makes it unique. Yeah, I think what's exciting to me about it is that not to date myself too much, but I actually watched the internet get born. My father was in civil defense and she would come home with like the little briefcase of the internet before the internet was an internet. So I've been in this world since I was like really little. And then my first job was kind of in it. And I saw this potential for the internet and it just never happened. Kind of like Trevor was saying his frustration. I was super frustrated. So I kind of left and went into traditional advertising and design because I was so angry, actually, and saying like, look at all this opportunity. So what's exciting to me personally, and I think a lot of people on the team is that here's an opportunity like where we don't have to wait for permission. We can kind of like construct our own projects and our own utility and our own communities. And it's kind of like our own unique DAOs and ecosystems. So that's what I'm personally super excited about. I would say that We've been really lucky about the community that we're building. I thought having not been involved in community projects, that having been on Nextdoor or Facebook connects some pretty wild people that show up, but we've only had two bots and zero crazies. And we have a lot of, <laughs> we have a lot of Discord members. We got like a thousand members in 24 hours, which was kind of mind blowing. It's not surprising to me, though. I mean, you've got some real leaders in the space and your team, including JR from ON1 Force. Big fan of that project. Hope to have those guys on at some point soon. I met Strawberry before in real life event in LA. A lot of NFT people are in LA. So, you know, fortunate for me. But maybe you could just go into a little bit more detail about how you guys are building community around your project. What are the types of things you've done and plan to do in the future? Right. So early on in the inception of this project, I, because I work in, my background is like branding and things like that. And really looking at like perceptual persuasive psychology, brand behavior, like motivating factors. So I was thinking, how can we be as absolutely inclusive as we possibly can? Because we're building a global community, right? So we've got different income structures. We've got different technology access. We've got different in real life access. So how many, how many touch points can we add value to every single person who might want to be part of our community, even if they can't afford or don't have access to purchasing Ethereal. So one cool thing is we have kind of IRL and, and virtual events on our Discord. So we've done things like starting morning cartoons and, and movie nights and things like that. We've created health channels for people to like share their struggles. We've created recipe channels and food pick channels. And it's really cool how like, all the people in our community are just kind of like naturally gravitating to the interests that draw them together as a community. I think because we're all a kind of NFT native, we had seen things we wished were part of the utility of other projects. And like, we're really building the plane as we fly it. 
we're also taking a lot of insight from the community members, like what they ask for, we give it to them. We've given international channels and all kinds of things like that. We really are listening. And based on some conversations within our community, we reoriented some of our story too, because we just thought it was super cool. And we made that known. We pushed back our launch date to incorporate more story. I was just curious if Trevor, if this is bringing back any nostalgia from the good old days when you got involved in Decentraland. The landscape is so different today. I'm amazed that you've had only two bots and zero crazies because that was not at all our experience. But it sounds just as exciting in many ways. And one of my questions, I don't know if it's like appropriate to ask questions now, but yeah, sure. No questions, Trevor. (laughs) (laughs) How do you balance? Like, I'm sure that you have such an opinion and like a, a strong vision for the project, especially being like coming from a brand background and being very like aesthetically interested. Maybe how do you balance that with in really like meaningfully including other people's directions and ideas and, and, and making use of the community, not as just a source of monetization, but also like it is the core of the project. It is a community project. I think that's a great question. The thing that I think of immediately, it's on a smaller scale. Where we talked about the two bots that invaded and I'm not going to say the name of them because I don't want to promote them, but we took that as a, a positive like we embraced it just like any part of life when something negative happens, how can you turn that lemon into lemonade? And it turned out to be a really fun thing with their discord oh, fun. <laughs> that this bot had invaded and, and the stuff had happened. And the community kept asking, or oh, is there going to be a trait for the bot? Is there going to be a trait? Because it, it was such an amazing kind of like, <laughs> yeah. the community came together to like, let's get this bot. Like what's happening? And so. I won't say for certain that there's going to be a trait for the bot, but there'll probably be a trait for the bot. And we infuse like it's leads like that, like infusing into the story. Like that's been part of our journey within that discord in that short period of time. And so it's like embracing that journey. And that's something we want to continue to do as the story evolves and the project. Yeah. And two, to add to that, Trevor, I've always tried to break away from this brand thing. Like I've worked on Fortune 500 companies. I've worked from, I've worked in video games very early in my career and things like that. And I saw that there was this like kind of manipulation of the marketplace and it was like manipulating what people wanted. It wasn't necessarily even serving what people wanted. It was like serving trends or serving partnerships or serving all of these other kinds of interests. And it always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And I thought, I kind of want to quit this this line of work, I don't like it. So what I did is I quit working for like one of the second largest ad agency in the world. And for my own agency, focused on social justice, environmental justice, purpose-driven brands. And I've been doing that for over a decade, but I was getting dissatisfied with that as well. And I wanted to be more involved, actually directly involved with the consumers and the people who would be actually making decisions about this. So that's what got me really excited about this project and will have me firing all my clients if this goes well, to focus all of my attention on this, because I feel like consumers have been so siloed by brands and their voices have been so silenced. And I think that if you look politically, if you look economically, we've all been silenced and disenfranchised. So I feel like NFTs are such a great opportunity to give us all back our voices. And the thing I like to say a lot in like tweets and comments and stuff when I'm engaging with people is as we rise, we lift others. And that's really kind of like the ethos, ethereals, and what we would like to promote is that as we rise, we lift others and we're pulling people along with us as we go. And I think that personally, because I'm an artist at heart, he's an artist at heart. Like we're so excited that art has a chance to actually change lives. You know, like there's too many extractive economies out there in the world. And I feel like this is one that could be additive to people and have a net positive effect. And that's super exciting to me because I know we're short on time. I just want to mention on the same note, the co-op, co-ops that we're creating. So we've already done one for our first in real life event that was in LA um, not too long ago where we partnered with Talk Time. I'd love to shout them out. They created this really beautiful project called Crypto Music Box where there's like a series of, I think there's like five of them where the artists also have like a piece of art that's created and it's really beautiful. And I encourage everybody to check it out. So that was a launch party for them. They were kind enough to invite us along for that. We issued a co-op for that. That pull-up will hold future utility for other things to come in the future. And people can build in these pull-ups like to access other things in the future. We won't say yet, but all those things are we're going to kind of keep some spoilers secret. But then now we have a, our second pull-up we're really excited about. A good friend of ours who became a friend through Ethereals is a DJ called Kaku. And he's got a nice following. He's very well, very well known, incredible person. And he's going to do DJ set for us on Wednesday of this week. 
And so anybody who comes to our Discord can then get a pull-up for that DJ set. And then again, unlock future utility with that pull-up. Why we think this pull-up is so important is because, again, you don't have to be an Ethereum holder to access this utility. You just have to be part of our community. You just want to, got to show up, have fun, grab a pull-up. We will continue to add pull-ups for the community. So what I think is really great about that is think about like, I can't remember the statistic, it's something like 70% of the world's population, their only access to the internet is through digital mobile phone. They could live in poverty and not have access to all kinds of things that we take for granted in our Western civilization, but we give them a pull-up and then something happens in their neck of the woods. They get access to other things. They get access to giveaways or any other kinds of utility that we can add in the future. So for me, that brings tears to my eyes and like <laughs> chills to think about being able to extend that access to people out in the world and bring them in on along with our fun. Yeah, that's cool. We talk a lot about community, you know, on the podcast, how important it is, the narrative, the story, kind of some traditional branding elements. But this is the first episode, I think, where we're really getting into the idea that being an active and contributing part of the community doesn't necessarily mean holding the NFT in question, holding right. a uh, piece of decentral land holding an ethereal, there are ways to really legitimately get involved well beyond just holding that piece. And and it's really important. Again, we haven't really gotten into this before, but this isn't just a symbolic involvement, right? We're talking about actual involvement and contribution above and beyond, you know, being a holder of the NFT. Right. And I mean, it really gets down to like, kind of like technological sovereignty. Like how can we add more of that out into the community without having to like get super invested and maybe following on Twitter or super invested on Discord or owning a PFP or, or any of these kinds of things that seem like barriers to entry. We really want to focus on inclusivity as much as we can for like, you know, even so, there's some people who spend a lot of time online that physically can't get out. So we want to be able to bring utility to them. There's people who financially can't travel. There's all kinds of things that we want to make sure that because we do have a large portion of our team in LA and we will have, just due to our resources and time and we're in a global pandemic and we're going to have IRL events, it's unfortunately probably in a lot of ways going to be in LA. We do want to get that opportunity for community and extend that out. So that's a big part of it. The other thing that's going to be cool for another co-op, for another in real life event, is we will be having our post-launch party at NFT NYC. And so anybody who attends, we will be streaming that as well. So then we'll be able to collect a pull-out for streaming. We'll be able to p- collect a pull-out for in real life. We haven't gotten that quite up yet, but we'll have the RSVP for that in an event right soon for anybody who would like to attend. That's, that's really cool. Yeah, appreciate all this great info. And I'm just curious, like the future of the project, we want to know a little bit about like, what are the traits going to look like? We know that you got your pre-sale on October 1st, minting will happen October 7th, but like, yeah, what do the traits look like? What does the future of the project look like after launch and minting? That's an interesting question. I immediately, as the artist who created the materials, I immediately think part, like there's going to be more and I'll immediately start making more art, but it's, it's so much bigger than that. I mean, it's, it's more about the community, like the art is one of the vehicles to bring the community together and have a point of connection. But the community is the bigger part of things organic and can speak on that. Yeah, so we've kind of teased it out in our roadmap to some extent, but again, part of that is we really want to get people, more people involved in NFTs. We want to get more people involved in art. We want to make this, what we really want to focus on accessibility. So part of that will be giving back to the community through identifying underserved populations, not just in the U.S., but globally and saying like, okay, what are tools and technology that we can like give to these other people who are interested in this space? And so identifying like say, and I'm not saying any of these names are set in stone, but like identifying like a girls of voice club, identifying art programs, identifying places that just don't have access and bringing in the access to those places through giving back. And so, you know, everybody knows that JR was a teacher, an art teacher at one point in time. So that was really important to them to have on this roadmap. It's important for us to foster inclusivity. I would encourage everybody to check out our roadmap on our website, ethereals.wtf. WTF stands for where's the fun? Just want to be clear. <laughs> so we have we have some of that like outlined in there. And then there's component for Decentraland as well. I have to be careful because I'm always on the verge of leap as spoilers. Because I'm so excited about it. Ben, in terms of traits, like obviously these are ghosts. And yeah, you think of ghosts and Halloween and that kind of stuff. And there are traits that relate to that for sure. But then there's other traits. Like I've been drawing like nonstop 
since then, really, yeah, from one project and then into this project. And one of the mainstays during that time was coffee. So like just Amber, like in that coffee in the morning, and there's a trade that's been released already. Think of a old, uh, like diner pot of coffee that you pour. It's like embedded in the ghost head. It's like that full and there's like a little tentacle, like in the coffee pot. And so there's these things that don't make any sense relative to Halloween or anything like that, but they're fun. That's where the part of the story of where things are kind of coming together and being recombined in different forms. I like Halloween because I'm from Salem, Mass, and I like coffee. So I'm going to, I hope I, I get that ghost. <laughs> I don't I know, man. It's always Peabody, Mass, Josh. Come on. What is it? You, you making it Salem now for this one? I don't know. I don't know how close they are, but come on. I lived in Peabody. I lived in Salem. I lived in Danvers. Right. But I did at one point interview the original famous witch of Salem, Laurie Cabot. You can look that up. Wow. And I was like five years old. I interviewed her for my local kid newspaper. That was pretty cool. That's amazing. Well, I do hope all the background of these uh, these inside stories and traits and whatnot do come out because again, narrative and community matters so much, you know, and I think people would really appreciate those stories. There's definitely inside stories that some of the traits. <laughs> I'm excited to share that part. Like, yeah. Yeah, we can't wait for Mitt because we just want to see how they come together. You know, like we've been fast and furious on metadata and naming and treat combos and rarity and all that stuff. So, and we just like spend so much time really just like laughing our heads off at the ridiculousness of what Duke was creating. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. Well, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about it. It was really fun. We're excited to chat with you. I think we're actually going to also do a little fun contest, a giveaway for joining the Ethereal community. And we'll talk a little bit about it on our socials here as we as we refine the details. But for our listeners, you know, keep an eye out and dig in on it. These designs are amazing and the project is so much fun. So please check it out. Thank you for having us. It was really wonderful and it was great hearing Trevor speak. And now I was interested before. Now I'm like going to go down a major rabbit hole. Sure. Amazing. All right. Thank you again. Are there actual Thanks, rabbit holes in Decentraland? I'm curious. I would like to buy one. If so. <laughs> there must be. I know. So Trevor, man, it's been, it's been great chatting with you as well, man. And I mean, just digging in here, your perspective across the board on these things has been amazing. It's really been a pleasure. Where should we direct folks to learn more about you, the Decentraland DAO and, and everything that you're working on? Yeah, people should go to governance.decentraland.org and see what's going on there. That's really the only plug I have. My Most of my time is in math homework, et cetera. But participate, have a critical view as you go out into the community as to what projects are here to you know empower people that have opinions about how the future of the internet should be. And you know, it sounds like Ethereals is one of those, so certainly head over there. But Decentraland is a place for creators and I'd encourage people to check that out. Speaking of ghosts, make sure to say hi to the ghost of Bruce Lee, who was a alumnus of uh, Washington University, probably haunting the halls with his wonderful uh, I hope so. moves. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I think we've reached the outer limit at the edge of NFTs for today. So thanks for exploring with us. We've got space for more adventures on this starship. So invite your friends and recruit some cool strangers that will make this journey all so much better. Al, go to iTunes right now, rate us and say something awesome. Then go to edgeofnft.com to dive further down the rabbit hole. Want to help co-create Edge of NFT with us? Got guests you'd like to see on the episodes? Questions for host or guests? An NFT you'd like us to review? Drop us a line at contact at edgeofnft.com or tweet at us at edgeofnft to get in the mix. Lastly, be sure to tune in next time for more great NFT content. Thanks again for sharing this time with us today. The views and opinions expressed on the Edge of NFT podcast reflect solely those views and opinions of the show creators and its guests. We're learning as we go just like you. Please make sure to do your own research. Our podcast is not financial advice. There are multiple strategies and not all strategies fit all people. You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk.